Good morning. Morning. I received a couple emails since I was here last, and I just want to share it with you. Here's the first. I, I would like to thank you for changing the way our family now looks at God, the Bible, and the plan of salvation, especially in the light of the great controversy. I will say that together with the books and discussion materials of Graham Maxwell and your work, our spiritual lives have been fundamentally changed. Our children now frequently comment on how much clearer the Bible is and how much more sense looking at the law from a design protocol standpoint as compared to composed constructs that we grew up with. Understanding things this way has resulted in so much more freedom, but without compromising anything since we essentially live the same lives and follow the same rules, not because we have to, but because we want to and understand why and because it is actually right, not because the Bible or someone else or even God says we have to do so. Thank you once again for your ministry. And then the second email. I want to start out by praising God for who he is. He is most loving and gracious. I also want to thank God for the message of love and the true picture of God and his character that he uses you to tell the world. I was raised in the Seventh-day Adventist home, went to Seventh-day Adventist schools through high school. I am 65 years old now, but when I was about 35 or so, I started to question the God that we were preaching. I started to look into it, but was afraid to say too much, for I sounded like I was not following the truth. Every time I would say something, some pastor or elder would stop me, saying, if I, don't be- if I do not believe what the church was teaching, then I wasn't a true follower of the teachings of the remnant church. My curiosity peaked, and in the late 90s, I wanted to leave the church because I could not stand the God that we were preaching. I did not leave, but was not active either. Meanwhile, I decided to dig into the Bible, searching for the God that my mind was looking for. In the year 2003, I started to be active again, and in 2005, I began to teach Sabbath school. I decided that I would start to teach what I found in my searching. Some amazing things happened. My class grew, but the leaders of the church I went to started to look at me closely and were not wanting me to, uh, in a leading position. <laughs> I was determined. It was studying the lessons of the glimpses of God that really got to me. I hated that quarterly and threw the whole book away, wrote to the Sabbath School Department of the GC and complained about the trash that we, uh, were, that we allowed to be taught to the world. But something good came out of it. I was still teaching Sabbath School and I needed some, something to teach. I went searching on the internet and God be the glory, I found Come and Reason uh, by Dr. Jennings. This has been the best find in my whole life. Now I speak with authority, not because of Dr. Jennings, but because of the materials I find that support the Bible teaching of a God I love best. Thank you again, and may God be the glory. Uh, may God continue to bless you in your ministry. So let's start class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth about your character of love and how it transforms lives. We thank you for the class here that allows us to reach so many around the world and for those whose lives are being changed by the truth about you. We pray that you'll be with us today, that our words will lift you up, that we will be able to remove distortions and misunderstandings that keep us from knowing your true character and methods. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we're doing lesson number seven in the quarterly Proverbs, and the title this week is Dealing with Fights. And as I saw that title, I thought, well, what fights are we dealing with? What fights are we dealing with? And, and uh, my mind started just going down through a, a list of them, and, and it went through things like wars between nations, fights between political parties, fights between factions in the church, fights between our children, between spouses, co-workers, police officers and citizens, parents and their children, students and, and t- students, students and teachers, teachers and school boards. I mean, when you think about it, is there really any part of our society where we don't find fights? 
I don't think there is, is there? True character of God is definitely one of them. And on the, the almost a daily basis, I'm in people's homes, and that's they will fight you over the God that's going to come back and get them. Yeah, isn't it sad? I'm yeah, yeah. The memory verse says in Proverbs seventeen one, "Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife." The text is focusing our attention on the home, which is a good place to start since the family is the social bedrock and most of our relationships and society operates on what's happening in the families. And if they're unhealthy, society suffers. What is the point of the proverb? Here's the Good News translation. Better to eat a dry crust of bread with peace of mind than to have a banquet in a house full of trouble. Isn't the point that mental and relationship peace, health and well-being is worth more than riches and extravagance? Is this limited only to food? It's not, is it? Do you all believe this to be true? Have you experienced it? You know, when I was young, and I know a lot of people that that come to my practice, and the only thing that they're focused on is some type of aggrandizement, whether it's wealth, whether it's position, whether it's reputation, whether it's awards. They they are just completely invested in gaining some, you know, some wealth of some kind, whether it's wealth of reputation or financial wealth, regardless of who they step on and the way to get there. Have you seen this? Well, science actually tells us individuals that actually have major mental health problems, like with a biological basis, like schizophrenia or bipolar or schizoaffective disorder, if they're in homes with high conflict, they do much worse. They have much more frequent psychotic episodes, much more frequent relapse, much more frequent hospitalizations than those same those individuals who live in homes where there's low conflict, even when they're not a direct participant in the conflict. If the conflict is between others, but they're in the home where it's always going on, they still do worse than if they're in a home where there's peace. Divorce is less damaging to children than living in homes with high parental conflict. The research has found that children do best. The very best home is a home, uh, and, and meaning best, they, they grow up with less mental health problems, less substance use problems. They end up doing better in school and in society and have better sense of personal well-being if they're in a home with a mother and father who love each other and there's low conflict. That's the best. But the next best outcome for children is in single-parent homes where there's low conflict, which they do much better in a single-parent home with low conflict than in a two-parent home where there's constant tension, fighting, argument, and conflict. That's much worse for the children. And the worst of all for children is a single-parent home where there's high conflict. That's the worst. Such high-conflict homes uh, actually alter developing brains. Children's brains get different when you grow up. And what happens is their fear and anxiety circuitry gets upregulated. They're more stressed. They're more anxious. They're less capable of calming themselves. The part of the brain that reasons and problem solves is less developed. So they're less capable of, of interacting in healthy relationships later when they come through very stressful childhood environments. An 11-year study of 10,000 men and women, 10,000 men and women, ages 36 to 54, found that those who had the highest levels of family conflict had two to three times the risk of dying in middle age 
not an old age, middle age, than those who had the lowest levels of family conflict. And the causes of death were from things like cancer, heart disease, suicide, liver disease, and alcohol abuse. Now, there's, they're all directly related to high stress. If you're highly stressed, you kick up inflammatory cascades. The inflammatory cascades increase your risk of diabetes and obesity, which increase your risk of heart attacks, interfere with immune system, which increase your risk of cancers, uh, cause glial damage of the brain, which increase your risk of depression, which increase your risk of suicide. And um, people will often turn to alcohol to calm themselves when they're highly stressed, which increases your risk of liver disease and death from alcohol. So all of them are directly related to the constant conflict and stress. A 32-year 32 32 prospective study, this is a study where they took individuals, they, over 800 individuals, and they followed them for the next 32 years. It's a very long and arduous study. But it's a very powerful study. The outcomes are very reliable when you do it this way. And they identified three measures of childhood adversity. Severe physical or sexual abuse, severe neglect, or severe socioeconomic deprivation. And then they divided those, those individuals into three groups. Those who had none of the adverse events, those who had one of those three, and then those who had two or three of those adverse events. And then they followed them over the next 32 years to see who developed depression. If you had none of the events, 11% of those individuals with none of the events developed depression. If you had one of those events, 20% developed depression. If you had two or more, 30% developed depression. And then they looked at, over the next uh, 32 years, who developed diabetes, obesity, diabetes type 2, obesity, and, and, um, and high cholesterol, ischemic heart problems, and so forth. And 11% if you had none of the events. 20% if you had one of the events. And 30% if you had two or more of the events. So childhood adversity physiologically changes us. Neurobiologically changes us. Conflict in the home is not healthy for us. So why does the commandment teach that if we honor our mothers and fathers, we live long on the earth that the Lord gives us? Because God uses divine power to shorten your life if you have conflict there? Or there's, a, there's an actual consequence. The way we are designed, the way we are built, we are built to operate in loving relationships. And when we go outside of love-trust relationships, we live in fear-selfish relationships, it is counter to the design and it is damaging to us. Sunday's lesson asks us to look at Proverbs 17.9 and 19.11. 17.9, it says, Whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. And 19.11, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. So what does it mean? What does it mean to cover an offense? When they were erasing the Watergate tapes years ago, were they covering an offense? If we should destroy evidence in a criminal case, are we following biblical principles to cover the offense? Hmm. No? So what does it mean then? What does it mean to cover an offense? I, I looked up in the dictionary this, this, this word cover. What does it mean to cover? And, I, and as we go through this, I want to ask you, which of the following of this idea cover applies to our relationship with Christ and Christ covering our offense? So let's look some, some of the definitions of the word, how it can be used. To hide or to conceal. Does Christ hide or conceal our condition from the Father? Does he hide or conceal our condition from us? Does he hide or conceal our condition at all? 
Have you ever heard it used this way? Yeah. All right. And another definition of the word conceal. To protect. I mean, to cover. It means to cover. It is, is to protect. Does Christ protect us? B- but from whom? That's the question, isn't it? Uh, does, he, does he protect us from the Father? Has you ever heard, have, ever heard it taught that way? Yeah, it's very destructive to teach that, but that's how it's frequently taught. And it's up there pleading to the Father, my blood, my blood, don't, don't let the Father's wrath fall upon us, and so forth. But that's not biblical. He protects us from what? And from whom? Okay, ourselves, that's good. And what else? Accusations of Satan. Accusations of Satan and any evil forces that Satan can instigate against us, yes. And how about actual sin in our own lives? The actual consequence. I mean, we have been protected from even the randomness of sin in the environment. He protects us from that sometimes as well. Uh, here's another definition. To serve as a substitute, to cover for them. Does Jesus act as our substitute? Stand in our place for us? Yes or no? It depends on... <laughs> the answer is, okay, so maybe we should list, if the answer is yes, how? How? Is he a legal substitute in a heavenly tribunal in which he goes on trial and he is judged in our place and when they find him innocent, we get the credit for that in our record books? Is that, is that how he's our substitute? No. You know, that's how it's taught, taught through the vast majority of Christianity and that is a falsehood. That's a fabrication. It's a fantasy. That's not reality. So if that's what people mean by substitute, then no. But did he come and become sin for us, though he knew no sin? Did he take his iniquity upon us so that we might become the righteousness of God? So did he, in one aspect, be our substitute in curing and healing and remedying this breach in our relationship with the Father to bring humanity back into relationship with the Father? Because we couldn't do it. The old song, he came down to our level because we couldn't get up to his. You remember the song? There's an, also another aspect. He stands as Adam's substitute because what was part of Adam's original purpose in his creation? Any thoughts on that? To reveal the character of God. Thank you. Yes, Adam. Remember God's, God's law, the law of love, is a living law. It's not a codification of imposed rules. And you can only understand the law of love fully live in a living being. Adam was created as the repository of God's law, his character, his methods. He was to carry out in the way he governed this planet, the way he treated his wife, and so forth and so on. God's very nature being carried out, he was to reveal God fully. He failed. So Christ came as the second Adam, as the Bible says, to be Adam's substitute to finish the work Adam failed to do. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He perfectly reveals the Father. So he substitutes where Adam failed as well in that mission. Here's another um, definition. And if you look at the dictionary, there's a whole list of definitions for cover. Here's the next one. To make an excuse or alibi. Does Christ make an excuse for us? No excuses. No alibis. No, it doesn't do it. Here's another one. To intervene to cover their mistake. Does Christ cover our mistakes? In what way? You see? In what way? So can you think of a way that he covers our mistakes? 
he restores. He he transforms and reconciles and yes, yes, he covers it can make it better or a hundred times. He heals. He yes, he does. He heals. He restores. He delivers. How many of you have experienced grace when you did something and there should have been something much more painful that happened, but somehow you experienced grace? Was your mistake covered? Well, not in a legal sense, in a reality sense. Covered out of mistakes. Covered out of mistakes. There you go. How many of you have been given more than one opportunity to overcome an area in your life? Yeah. Okay, how about this one? This is, uh, this is actually in the dictionary like this. So, To back them up in a card game when playing a partner, you can cover someone else's bad play. <laughs> you know, they throw a bad card and you can cover with a... Okay, does Christ... Christ doesn't play cards. <laughs> not that he might not wouldn't. Right. N- not, not that he, but, but I don't know anybody who's actually been in a card game with Christ. So, um, But uh, does he... Pardon? I didn't hear that. Only Rook. Only Rook. <laughs> yes. Only Rook. <laughs> okay. Okay. What, what, but what, while we haven't seen him play cards, does he back up our decisions, cover our decisions, and sometimes trump us? Or overrule our decisions for our own good if we trust him. Yes, he does. He's there to, we'll play a bad card. We're making a bad choice, but we say, Lord, you know what? Uh, I trust you. This is the thing I think is best, but Lord, if you know better, overrule. How many of you even prayed that prayer? Well, aren't you glad he's got some trump cards? Yes, yes, I think it's a good way that he covers us. And these are a lot better than that traditional legal way of looking at it, isn't it? Yeah. And then... If you look at the context of the passage of Proverbs, the context is about not spreading on information or shortcomings of a person to keep the information confidential, to protect a person's reputation. That's what the context is with the second part of the verse. Does Christ repeat our sins, our failings, our most shameful moments, or does he protect our reputations and not repeat it? Does he cover for us that way as well? 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. How many times has God been presented as sending his recording angel around to keep a specific record of every shameful thing you've ever done, and one day, not in a private audience chamber with the judge, but before the entire universe, he's going to air your dirty laundry. Unless you've accept the blood of Jesus to race the record book, so when the Father looks at your record, he's going, wait a second, I don't have any record here. It looks like magic eraser ink has wiped it all out. This is what some teach. It's ridiculous. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Does that mean there are no records? No. Yes. I mean, I can't help but think of Ecclesiastes, you know, the very last verse. When we talk about that, where it talks about for God should bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how you answer. And so what lends, the, the key is, how do you, it always comes back to how do you understand God's law? Do you see God as designer, creator, his laws are the actual protocols upon which reality is built to operate, or do you see him as a dictator like a Roman emperor who makes up rules? And, and depending on which way you view it, then you read that text, because that text is not a problem for me. Because what it means is, the word judgment, if you're through design lens, he brings everything into its proper diagnosis. 
What does a doctor do when he examines someone critically and goes much deeper than a courtroom judge because a doctor will put somebody in an MRI scanner and put a scope into dark recesses of your body where light normally doesn't shine? Okay, And he will examine you in places you've never been examined before. And he's looking for every possible defect he can find, isn't he? For what purpose? Oh, isn't that interesting? Yes, and if he finds a defect, will the doctor overlook it or will he diagnose it accurately? He will bring it all into proper diagnosis. And so we read in Scripture, in Revelation, for instance, let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is wicked be wicked still. That is a diagnosis. Or in Hosea, when he judged Ephraim, here's the judgment of Ephraim. Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. That's a, that's a diagnosis. That's a judgment. Yes? You had talked about records, and are there any records? What came to my mind was the person who has smoked for 20 years outside of God's intent for the body and the lungs, and a record of wrong would be the cancer that this individual uh, contracted. I mean, some of the consequences to the things that we choose to do are records, but they're not records that are held against us in a legal sense at the last judgment. That's correct. So love keeps no record of wrong. It would be very much like medical records. Doctors do keep records, but they're never to condemn, to embarrass, to humiliate, to judge the person by. They are to heal, to restore. Yet if you have a person who's non-compliant, a person who won't follow any of the treatment recommendations, a person who keeps worse and worse and worse and dies of their unremedied condition because they kept refusing the remedy, and then the family of that person sues the doctor for not treating them properly, then what comes into evidence? The records. For what purpose? To judge this person who is not compliant by or to exonerate the doctor? There are records, but the primary purpose of the records that are kept are, are not to judge the wicked or the lost. There's no need to because they're, they're out of harmony. They're terminal. It is to actually reveal to all those who have questions, God did everything for these people. There's nothing he could have done. The only reason they're lost is not a God's hand. It's their own insistent refusal to participate in everything he's provided for them. The records are there to exonerate God in the eyes of finite beings who can't know all things, not to judge and condemn. And we have this so backwards that we distort God into this punitive dictator that nobody actually is, is comfortable going before. And I, and I use this metaphor, but I'll say it again because I think it fits at this time. The metaphor of the heroin addict who is deviating from natural law, design law, loss of health, injuring himself, dirty needles, infections, fever, but he's also deviating from imposed law, loss of the land. He's breaking both types of law. Does he want to be taken before the magistrate and have his deeds revealed before the judge and have the judge pronounce judgment and sentence upon him? Does he want to do that? No. He does not. But with his fever, with his, uh, with his, his sickness of using all these dirty drugs and what he's done to his body, does he want to go before the doctor and have the doctor examine him critically and even more deeply than the judge doing echocardiograms and so forth and so on and diagnose, make a judgment, which we call diagnosis, and then pass sentence upon him, which we call a treatment remedy? Does he want to do that? Sure. And this is what we read in Scripture. David says to God, Search me and see the wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. When we come back to understand God as a designer, then we long to be examined by him because we know that when he examines us, he will diagnose exactly what's wrong with us and provide the remedy to heal and set us right. And that's what justification is. Being set right. Being restored to rightness. Being made right. Being righteous. Justification, or setting right. That's what it means. So could discovering an offense actually mean if you see offenses as symptoms of a person's struggles, 
Their offenses are symptoms of struggle. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Good people bring forth goods. You follow what I'm saying here? See the offenses are the symptoms? Their weaknesses of character, so forth. If you love them, you don't want to embarrass them. You don't want to expose them. You seek to bring them interventions that will heal and help them gain mastery and victory over the besetting problems in their life. So if you have a friend who's been, uh, who's received a steroid injection because of respiratory uh, distress and they get a psychotic reaction in, re- in response to the steroids, which can happen. You've seen it. I've seen it. And in their psychotic state, they're, they're, they say vulgar and ugly things and, and do uh, aggressive and violent behaviors. Would you then want to video that and put it on Facebook to humiliate them if they're your friend? Or would you want to protect them from themselves because in the psychotic state they might want to go walking around naked in public? Would you want to protect them from themselves and get them to help where they can be put back to what's right? Yes. How about if you're struggling and have someone in your life who's struggling with fear and insecurity? which leads them to act out. They're so insecure. They're so lonely. They just want someone to like them. They just want someone to love them. So they, so they can't stand rejection, so they're constantly seeking attention from others, and they, and they put themselves in positions of exploitation. I think you'll find this was one of Mary Magdala's struggles. She just wanted to be loved. She just wanted someone to like her, but she felt so bad about herself, was so insecure, felt so horrible, so shameful. She kept putting herself in positions to, where she was taken advantage of. If you have somebody that you know is like this, do you want to put on Facebook and out in public all their shortcomings? Or do you want to protect them and protect their reputation and get them and cover for them? Not make excuse, but help them get remedy. When the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery before Christ, and we won't talk about the woman because that's an obvious one, think about the persons who brought her. These were his enemies. They wanted to trap him. It was a trap. If he says, don't stone her, Turn to people. See, he, he doesn't support the law of Moses. The law of Moses says we should stone the adulteress. You can't trust this guy. He's a hypocrite. If he says stoner, they go to the Romans, say, hey, he's usurping Roman authority because only Romans have the, can inflict the death penalty. That's why they had to get Pilate's approval to put Christ to death. So he's re- usurping Roman authority. We're going to have him arrested for trying to put himself above Rome. It was a trap. And Jesus knew all of their secret sins. They're there to trap him, and he knew all of their dirt. Think about that. Think about the next time you watch a political presidential debate. And just imagine one of those parties, one of those opponents knows all the dirt on the other one. You think they're going to keep it quiet? <laughs> so what did Christ do? Get your mind around this. What he did, he, said, he just bent down, started writing in the sand the sins of the people, but no names. No identifying information, just the sin. And then he stands up, who's without sin cast the first stone? And they look and they see, and from the oldest to the youngest, the oldest figured it out fast, I better get out of here, I'm gone. (laughs) Vapor trail, I'm out of here. And they disappeared. But notice the method here. He protected the reputations of his enemies. You don't have to fear going to him and saying, search me and find what's wrong. He's not going to hurt you. He already knows anyway. He's not going to use the information to hurt us. So how can the idea of covering a sin be misunderstood and cause confusion and misrepresent God? When we view things through that imperial imposed law model and we present sin as breaking rules, which offends the ruling authority, causing God to be upset and wrathful and anger and angry and in need of uh, venting his wrath, then we have to have Jesus, who came to propitiate and assuage his wrath, uh, uh, and we introduce such ideas like this, 
that God needs that we need to have our sin covered so when the father looks at us he can't see our sin because if he did he couldn't control himself he would act out in rage and he would hurt us so we have to cover it and hide his eyes from it just because he covered our sin doesn't mean he condoned them that's right doesn't condone or or the robe of righteousness this is another one under the instead of teaching the truth the beauty that we have internalized christ and his Law has been written on the heart and mind, and we've been recreating the inner person to be like him. That's what covering actually means, to be transformed. We teach instead the candy coat or rotten apple theory, that we're still rotten to the core, but God coats us with a candy coat, the robe of Christ's righteousness, so when the Father looks at us, he can't see how sick we are. Or the blood. The blood is applied to those record books and erases them, because we certainly couldn't trust the Father to know what was in there, because if he saw it, he would be bound by his rage and his wrath to lash out against us. So we have to cover up. This is all falsehood based on understanding God's law falsely. Last paragraph says, One does not love a friend or spouse because he or she is perfect. I was thinking, except for me, I guess. I've got the perfect spouse, so. Uh-huh, you gag. Okay, I gotcha. We love in spite of their mistakes and flaws. Only through love do we learn not to judge others, because we, because with our own faults and shortcomings, we could ju- be just as guilty. Instead, we can mourn with them over what they have done and seek in whatever way we can to help them work through it. After all, what are friends for if not for this? I thought this was well said. This is really, this is what the church is to be. To be a place where you experience love in spite of your faults, in spite of your sins, a place where you find refuge, a place where you find support, help, encouragement, uh, friends. Unfortunately, 12-step groups are much more effective at doing this. And, and why would that be? Why do you think 12-step groups are better at doing this than the church? Yeah, well, what, what leads to that, do you think? They all recognize they have a problem. Uh, I'm going to suggest that it has to do with an artificial construct introduced into our minds when we come into the church, and that is institutionalism and institutional loyalty. We have to protect the institution. We have to protect the standards. We can't corrupt the, 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 the doctrines and the message. We can't condone evil. We can't send a message to the younger generation that this is okay. And so we have these ideas that we somehow have to protect the institution and so we have institutional standards that we have to put above loving people. And I think this leads to a corruption in the practice of Christianity. That we don't love each other well because we're too busy being loyal to the rules of the institution. Am I wrong or right about that? You're right. You're right. <clears throat> Tuesday's lesson asks us to look at Proverbs 18. And examine, and so I'm going to read some of the Proverbs. We'll go through some of these and we'll examine the meaning of them. Proverbs 18.1. Loners who care only for themselves spit on the common good. And this is from the uh, message translation. How do you like that proverb? Loners who care only for themselves spit on the common good. And what's the lesson? That, pe- that people that lack compassion, that have no empathy, they can't love, they're self-centered, uh, they, they want to do what they want to do and other people are there for their exploitation and use. Number t- uh, v- verse 2, fools care nothing for thoughtful discourse. All they do is run off at the mouth. <laughs> All they do is run off at the mouth. Have you known people like this? They talk and talk and talk, but never stop to listen. They don't want to understand anything. Oh, I've known people like this. 
And they talk and talk and talk, but they never stop to listen. And you talk to them, and, and, and they don't actually ever listen to what you're saying. They don't let it register. Uh, it's not even just talking. Sometimes I've had dialogues online with people <laughs> who just write and write and write, and you answer their question, and they never read, really register what you said. Have some of you seen this? Watch the news. Yeah. Condition for this type of behavior. Verse 3. When wickedness arrives, shame's not far behind. Contempt for life is contemptible. So is shame after wickedness imposed, inflicted, or a natural result of deviating from God's design? Get your mind around that. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid and they were also shameful. That shame was not inflicted by God. It's a natural consequence. Our own consciences convict us. We are ashamed of ourselves. And think about this. And, and what does shame do? What's the function? When you feel shame, what's, its, what's the consequence on your life? What are the cascading events that happen when you're living in shame? We have fear. Fear of what? Almost everything if you're shameful. Fear of what, specifically? Where's, where does it have its primary... Exposure. Exposure to... Public. To public, to others, okay? So it has a relational consequence. Does shame build relationships or fracture them? Fracture. By whose... Who, who makes the decision to isolate the shameful person from others? Get your mind around that idea. They don't see it. They think nobody wants to be with them. They project it out. It's projection. Oh, they, nobody, if they knew me, they wouldn't like me. They wouldn't want to be with me. They think everybody else is judgmental. But in reality, they're judging themselves and their own shame and their own fear cause them to isolate from others. This is one of the purposes of the 12 steps. People who've done uh, addictive things and have lived in shame, they isolate. They, they, uh, and in isolation, they have more fear. They can't come over, overcome their fear, so they turn to their addictions, and there's a, a repeated cycle of behavior going on. One of the purposes of the 12 steps, hey, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Joe, glad you're here. And in the 12-step group, they experience a, a revelation. They've exposed themselves, and they weren't cast off. They weren't rejected. They experience acceptance as a human being, but not acceptance of the destruction they were doing to themselves. But they, they still cared about for, as a person. This is also what church is supposed to do when it says confess your sins one to another. This confession is to be an experience where you overcome shame that isolates and fragments and separates. But you really can't confess to immature people. Why is contempt for life contemptible? The attitude or mindset that doesn't value life is to be devalued. That's what it means. If you don't value life, if you're one of those people who cruel to animals, cruel to people, that is contemptible. We want to cherish life, protect life, promote life. And think about the infatuation in our society today with death. Do you know there's a huge infatuation with death? Death is promoted all over the place in various forms. The young generation, I mean, one of the fun things they do is skulls and crossbones and skull, skull, I mean, what's one of the most favorite, uh, ear, um, uh, listening devices they have out there today? Earphones? Skull candy. <laughs> okay? I mean, they really, pr everything's got this nuance to it, pretty much. The television programs, I mean, they're, it just, there was, a, there was a TV series on recently that had an episode where they, ex they um, focused on a group of people who sell memorabilia from serial killers. Sick. Uh, verse 4. Many words rush along like rivers in a flood, but deep wisdom flows from artesian springs. 
I know some people who talk and talk and talk and talk, and they move from one topic to another topic to another topic to another topic. They're not manic. They're not bipolar. They have issues in their life that they're uncomfortable looking at. They have insecurities. They have fears. They, they, and they don't ever want to stop long enough to get a glance in the mirror. So they're constantly moving from topic to topic to subject to subject, just flighty, 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 going con. It's a way of, of defending and avoiding ever coming to a, a meaningful thought about their own life and where they are. Verse 5. It's not right to go easy on the guilty or come down hard on the innocent. So the first question, what does it mean, and I want you to think carefully, to go easy on the guilty? Which law lens are you looking through? That word guilty traps you or tricks you to trip up and go down the forensic legal law model. That's where it's trying to lead you. Don't go down that model. See it through the model of design law. What does it mean to go easy on the guilty? What is not the right action to take? See, go easy would, would not be right, would it? It would be the wrong thing to do, right? Following me? If we said it is not right to go easy on the sick, what would we mean by that? Instead of we, we substitute guilty, substitute sick for guilty. It's not, it's not right to go easy on the sick. What would we mean by that? If we had somebody who had a broken leg and we went easy on them, maybe we don't send them to physical therapy. We go easy on them. You don't send them to physical therapy. Would that be right or would that be wrong? It's not right to go easy on them. Why is it not right to go easy on them? What about what you say? Serves them right. They were doing a stupid thing. Yeah, it's not, it's not, if, if it's in a loving attitude, see, is it right if, if your child is sticking out their hand after repeated attempts and, and instructions, don't touch that stove, don't touch that stove, and you see them about to touch that stove, and you have enough time to spray numbing medicine on their hand before they do? <laughs> do you help them? No. But you're going easy on them. You don't want them to hurt. You want to protect them from pain. So you're going easy on them. Letting people feel the pain of consequence is not, a pun- is not cruel. It's not a punitive action. It's not punishment. It is education. It is teaching. It's discipline. It's to help people learn. It's mercy. We don't want to go easy on the guilty. But see, what happens when you see this through the imperial dictator view, when we want to impose pile-up punishments to make them pay. That's distortion. The words of the fool start fights. Do him a favor and gag him. That's verse 6. Wow, man. Have you ever known somebody? Should we, if we did that, could we claim religious liberty? Hey, I, I gagged that guy, and I'm, I'm just exercising my, my constitutional rights of free, free religion. But, but do you notice who you're protecting when you do that? You're not actually protecting society. You're protecting the fool. Protect him from himself. Yeah. Fools are undone by their big mouths. Their souls are crushed by their words. This is from the book Desire of Ages. On this idea, it's from page 323. Closely connected with Christ's warnings regarding the sin against the Holy Spirit is the warning against idle and evil words. The words are an indication of what is in the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But the words are more than an indication of character. They have power to react on character. Men are influenced by their own words. Often under the momentary impulse prompted by Satan, they give utterance to jealousy or evil surmising, expressing that which they do not really believe. 
but the expression reacts on the thoughts. They are deceived by their words and come to believe that true which was spoken at Satan's instigation. Having once expressed an opinion or decision, they are often too proud to retract it and try to prove themselves in the right until they come to believe that they are. It is dangerous to utter a word of doubt, dangerous to question the, uh, and criticize divine light. The habit of careless and irreverent criticism reacts upon the character. In fostering irreverence and unbelief, many a man indulging this habit has gone on unconscious of danger until he was ready to criticize and reject the work of the Holy Spirit. I think that was uh, an expansion of the proverb. Fools are undone by their big mouths. Their souls are crushed by their words. Do you see that, that words are more than just an expression? They do react. They reinforce and I've seen this happen, that people will come out and say something, and now they feel the, the importance to stand by what they said. Well, I said it. I'm going to stand by it. Verse 8. Listening to gossip is like eating cheap candy. Do you really want junk like that in your belly? I think that's a great analogy because it is like cheap candy. It isn't good for us, and yet we eat it anyway. Don't we? How many of us eat cheap candy? Come on. <laughs> and that's what we do with gossip. We, we take it in anyway, too often. Slack habits and sloppy work are as bad as vandalism. Did you hear this one, Christy? Verse 9, slack habits and sloppy work are as bad as vandalism. I'm I'm saying that because we know. (laughs) We know. How many times have you been inconvenienced, had to do something two or three or four times, had, had to call an extra repairman, extra workman, because somebody you hired didn't do their job right the first time? How many in the healthcare industry has had to deal with Medicare, Medicaid, or third-party payers, and the people who you file with don't do their job right, and so you've got to do a lot more work. And it is vandalism because it's stealing from you your time, your energy, and your resources to clean up their messes all the time. I think this is exactly true. It's like vandalism. God's name is a place of protection. Good people can run there and be safe. Verse 10. What does it mean, God's name? Does it mean calling out, Jesus saves, Jesus save me, God help me? Is that what it means? Or are we protected in our minds, in our souls, in our characters when we abide in his character practicing his methods? His name, his character, his methods are a place of protection. It's where we reside. It's what we love. Wise men and women are always learning, always listening for fresh insights. Are we lovers of the truth, recognizing we are finite? There's always more to learn. Do we hunger to expand our understanding and learn more? Or are we fearful of new insights and seek to shut down new light to defend our traditions? It's part of the battle we're fighting too, isn't it, guys? Going up against tradition. And verse 22, let's jump to verse 22. Find a good spouse and you find a good life, even more the favor of God. This is true. I can testify to this. <laughs> any verses in, in that chapter anybody here want to unpack particularly? That you meant something to you as you were studying this week? The, yes. We were talking about shame a while ago. Mm-hmm. Outside yourself, the shame as far as people. But shame within oneself is a trigger to help you alleviate what made you be ashamed within yourself. So it's actually a two, it's a trigger to create outside yourself what you've been ashamed about. I, I think I know what you mean. I think some, some people would argue that you, that you might be confusing shame and guilt. 
guilt is the conviction of the spirit to bring us to conviction of what's destructive and unhealthy. But many psychologists and, and, and theorists would argue that shame is actually a destructive, self-centered, self-loathing that is not from the spirit and is really destructive. But, they, but many people confuse guilt and shame. So I would give you that to think about. Um, shame seems to be very, very devastating and destructive, whereas guilt can have a very positive experience to bring conviction and turn us around. So, yes. You know, the NIV in that text you just read is, is significantly different. What's it say? Finds a wife, finds what is good, receives favor from the Lord. Now, Solomon found, what, upwards of 900 wives. And... 700 and 300 concubines. Okay. So, were, they, were they all favors from the Lord? And did they do him any good? Not a hundred. Find well, actually, but that, but it says. Notice the word in mine. It says find a good spouse. Yours doesn't say good. I know, no, it doesn't. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. The NIV has a, a significantly different. Trend. It says find just find a wife. Who finds a wife finds what is good receives favor from the Lord. Uh, no, but that's so. Notice the translation finds what is good. They put the good as in finding the wife, whereas this translation put finding a good wife. Uh, it finds uh, finds a good life. So, I, I don't know the nuance of the Hebrew to know which is really the best way to do it. King James has it basically the same way. Find a wife. Who finds a wife? Well, I think, I think we can understand that that's actually a, factually not necessarily true. It has to be. I mean, it, who finds Jezebel as a wife finds a good thing. Right. <laughs> Anybody going to say that that's true? No, it has to be a good person to have a good thing. You know, when I tell my patients, healthy relationships require healthy people. If you aren't a healthy person, you can't have a healthy relationship. And if you are a healthy person, Jesus Christ, but you're in relationship with an unhealthy person, Judas or Satan, you don't have a healthy relationship. Even if you're healthy, you can't have a healthy relationship with an unhealthy person. Healthy relationships require healthy people. So I would say the proverb can't be true just in you find somebody to marry, then you found a good thing. Not necessarily true. I think the uh, the message probably put it right. Good wife is really probably going to be more accurate to the meaning. But thanks for clarifying that because if you read the other version, then somebody could read that and just take it very concretely. Well, I'm going to go find my wife. I'll get out there on uh, you know uh, Matchmaker.com and find somebody. Yeah, yes. This is the clear word. But chapter twenty, uh, I mean verse twenty-three says, "When a poor man asks for something, he must beg. But everyone listens when a rich man speaks, even if he is rude." And I think of some of the reality shows on TV, these rich people that are absolutely ridiculous, you know, and you think if they're poor, nobody would give them the time of day. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. That's exactly true. Rich people can say almost anything, and, and people want to stay, ingratiate themselves with them. Sure. Wednesday's lesson, Proverbs 18.17. Let's listen to Proverbs 18.17. The first speech in a court case is always convincing until the cross-examination starts. <laughs> What's the wisdom of this proverb? Is it restricted to court cases? Or is there wisdom that applies to all of our lives? What is the wisdom here? Look at all, Look at all sides. You know, sadly, many people who disagree with what we teach in this class have not applied this proverb. Because what they've done is they've listened to gossip, they've listened to somebody else's um, you know, um, prosec prosecutorial attack on what we teach. They've been convinced, it was so convincing, but they never took the time to 
investigate the evidence for themselves. This past week when I was in Monterey, two people came to me, and I want to affirm them for doing so because they were in that boat where somebody had presented things that I teach and that was very concerning to them. So we had some time aside, and I, and I went through those teachings, and after they heard my side of it, they go, I agree with you. It happens a lot. I can't tell you how often it happens that people are opposed to us having heard the prosecution, the, the, the detractors, those who will twist and distort, and then many people, though, will never come and, and listen. And some of you, I know Dennis has told me, he's gone around and tried to share stuff, and people will say, oh, I heard about Jennings. He's a hypocrite. He doesn't teach this. He, well, have you checked it out? Have you gone to his website? Have you read his? No, I don't have to, because my pastor said. And my pastor said, well, that's all there is to it. And so I think this Proverbs is a great one. Try that. You know, the first speech in a court case, Proverbs eighteen seventeen, is always convincing until the cross-examination starts. That's good. Third paragraph in Wednesday's lesson. Only God... Only God does not need a second opinion, precisely because by his nature, he already has it, for he has eyes, for his eyes are everywhere. God has the capacity to see all sides of any matter. What we, by contrast, generally have a very narrow view of everything, a view that tends to get even narrower when we think, when we get locked into a position, especially on matters that we think are important. I think there's a lot of wisdom in this paragraph, but I want to unpack that first part of it. Is it being said in this paragraph that God, not needing a second opinion, doesn't need the input, information, testimony, evidence, perspective of others in order for him to know what's true? Or does he need the input of others? Does or does not? I didn't hear you. I heard mumbles. Come on, guys. Does or does not need the input for him to know what's true? This is, he does not. This is correct. Okay. So then, think that through. What would that mean then in regard to what is typically taught about the judgment? think about how many ways you've heard the judgment does some version of Christianity teach God his record books and, he's investig- and there's, he investigates the records to determine guilt and innocence and that he listens to the second opinion of Jesus who pleads to the Father on our behalf you've not heard that idea but he doesn't need it he doesn't do it wait Have you heard that Jesus can empathize with us because he suffered in human flesh and thus he knows how to empathize with us and and he can then influence his father and tell his father how hard it is for us down here and plead to his father as our representative and advocate in heaven. But I thought the father knows all sides. He doesn't need a second opinion. Have you heard this idea that Jesus can empathize with us? He can empathize with us. But it's been twisted and it goes the other way that somehow the Father doesn't really know how bad it is on us until Jesus te- explains it to him. That's distorted. That's not true. All these ideas, these ideas that the Father somehow has to investigate, you know, the investigative judgment is like something the Father's doing in heaven so he can determine before he comes who gets a reward and who gets punishment. Guys, please. Really? He who knows the end from the beginning, who knows all things, there's no secrets, he knows the, the recesses of every heart, he knows every factoid of, in the whole universe, past, present, and future. He has to do an investigation? Really? This is so narrow. It's based on human law projected into heaven, constraining God to operate in a human court structure. It's false. There is an investigation prior to the coming, and the investigation is for the purpose of determining reward and, 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 and uh, consequence. But who's doing the investigating? 
We're doing the investigating, and what are we investigating, and what are we judging? We're investigating the truth about God who's been uh, misrepresented by Satan, and we're coming to a decision on whether we can trust him or not. And if we investigate and come to trust him, we open the heart, and he pours the spirit out, we're transformed, we're reconciled, we're rewarded. If, on the other hand, we, we come to an investigation, and we judge that he's untrustworthy, we turn our backs on him, we walk away from him, then we continue to die of our terminal condition, and we're ultimately crushed in the end. We've got this backwards in so many ways. But we can't develop it because we have institutional distortion in which we can't allow for development of thoughts from one of our founders because she wrote to a certain segment of our population, a segment of children, infants at level one through four, trying to communicate in a language that they could comprehend to help them move in the right direction. But those in leadership are afraid that if we allow those those descriptions that were childish in nature to the children to be developed into a higher reality, that somehow we disavow her. So we can't do it. They have more problems with Scripture, I can tell you. If you look at Scripture, there's plenty of things in Scripture that were written to children. Written in very, very primitive language. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Really, should we practice that today? Concretely, literally? It was right in Scripture. If your son, unruly, what, what are we supposed to do with unruly children? Stone, Stone them. That's what we should do, Scripture says. Did you know that in, in, in Leviticus? That, uh, that if you were a priest that had bad vision, you couldn't, you couldn't be a priest anymore. You could not function in the role of priest. You had bad vision. So all our pastors with glasses can no longer function. We have to retire them all. <laughs> Why don't we apply this? Yes. Old habits die hard. <clears throat> when, when we went to Adventist schools and academies and college, um, uh, the, the, these, these uh, uh, observations about investigative judgment and so on, that was, <clears throat> it was gospel. There was no questioning of that. Uh, and again, I'm not, disabu- I'm not disputing there is an investigative judgment going on. We have just misunderstood it and misapplied it because we've misunderstood God's law and the purpose of who's being inv- and what's being investigated and why. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, the hour in which he is finally being judged rightly. It's a time in human history when we can come to see him for who he really is because we have enough truth recovered through the eons of time, through the millennia of time, that we can actually make a correct judgment that God is not like Satan says he is. God is like Jesus revealed him to be. And that's where to glorify him by living his character in our lives because this is the time it's supposed to happen. That we've got it all backwards and so the devil tricks us with this distorted law concept that keeps the church paralyzed in a legalistic construct where there's no power. They have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And people don't live victoriously. I wanted to say a couple more things. Um, this idea of, of God not needing a second opinion, then you go to the metaphor of the sanctuary. When Christ, on, on, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes in and takes blood into the most holy place. How do we teach that? Who do we typically teach the blood's being presented to? God, right? Well, what's the blood is metaphor. It's symbol. Not red corpuscles. And what is it symbolic of? Number one, it's symbolic of the life. And number two, it's symbolic of the truth. That's why Jesus said you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Internalize the truth and the life of Christ into our hearts. But does the Father need truth presented to him? Does the Father need the life of Christ presented to him to reveal how good the Father is? Well, I didn't know I was really that good until you showed me. Jesus, thank you for letting me know I'm really better than I thought. (laughs) He doesn't need this. We are the ones who need the truth. 
And we're the ones who need the regenerating life of Christ that is being presented to us. And then Thursday's lesson, we're going to close on this. Jump to Thursday's lesson. It asks us to read uh, Proverbs 19. And I just want to jump down to Proverbs 19.3. People ruin their lives by their own stupidity. So why does God always get the blame? (laughs) Isn't that a really good one? Uh, But I'm going to unpack it for us. God gets blamed because people don't want to admit their own folly or take responsibility for their own actions. They want to make excuses. It wasn't me, Lord. It was the woman you gave me. And because you gave her to me, it's your fault, Lord. If you wouldn't have put her here, I wouldn't have done that. It's your fault, Lord. You see it right there in Genesis is where it started. And the, but the most stupid thing people can do that ruin their lives is when they find themselves in bad situations, they try to fix it themselves. Let's sew the fig leaves together, cover it up, make it all right on our own. In other words, many people have sinned, feel guilt, feel shame, and don't simply return to God in humble repentance and for healing and restoration. They go on trying to rescue themselves, fix it, make up for it, do good good works, uh, uh, to to recompense, to to weigh the ledger in the other side, work, 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 work. So uh, in closing, one of Dr. Jennings' rules, I don't have many, If you find yourself in a hole, quit digging. (laughs) Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are an amazing God of truth and love and you've created your universe to operate in an absolute free state in which everyone loves each other and everyone is trustworthy. We realize we're infected. We're infected with lies about you that broke the circle of love and trust that caused us to live in fear and selfishness and we don't live trustworthy lives. But you sent your son to win us back to trust, to win a victory in, in humanity that we couldn't win, to restore your methods, principles, design into the species human. And now we ask for your spirit to take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And we can represent you to this world, break off the fetters of distortion that have got so many minds corrupted and, and closed, and, and that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.